Circuit Cast with your host, Mark Amory. Kia ora koutou, listeners. Welcome to a conversation on moving image and art from Aotearoa and beyond. In this Circuit Cast, we speak to curator Mercedes Vicente in Spain about her art and social change research project and about whether artists really can affect change. And we take a noisy walk with things being blown up all over the show with Xiong Yo Ol during his exhibition Install Week at City Gallery Wellington. So first we start with our critical forum, where every podcast we consider an exhibition with our friends and colleagues. And the bone we're chewing on this month is Peter Waring's Stuggerings and Fajetterings at Enjoy Gallery Wellington. In the pod with me are Martin Patrick and Megan Dunn. Kia ora to you both. Hi. 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 Um, Stuggerings and Fajetterings, is that, I don't know, is it Danish, Norwegian? Anyone kind of decided what these words, where they might originate from? Well, I I had decided that they might be made up, hmm. and this is based on a Google search where I checked the first two pages. So, if, just in case you wanted the depth of my research there, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know what's interesting? The, the words are interesting, and yeah, the, I thought the, they were made up too. The big way that I've come into the show, it instantly reminded me of a quote I love from one of my favourite books, "Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit" by Jeanette Winterson, which is about you know, a young girl's journey in a very uh, religious, deeply religious, zealot family. And she talks at one point, she makes a comparison between the preacher, who uses known words and words of power, words that comfort, and the prophet. And she has this great quote in the book, the prophet has no book. The prophet is a voice that cries in the wilderness, full of sounds that do not always set into meaning. Prophets cry out because they are troubled by demons. And I thought, you know, this show seems to me some kind of parable or moral um, and the, the figure of the prophet looms large. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, well maybe we should explain a little bit for those <laughs> who aren't in Wellington to see it, what, what, we, what we're presented with. It's a two screen video work and on the left hand side are scenes from a black and white 1966 Pasolini film called The Hawks and the Sparrows in which two Franciscan friars dance and holler and try and find ways to communicate with the birds as I understand it. And while on the right there is footage of artist Eugene Chrysler in the streets of New Plymouth. And he's trying out all manner of absurd movements or games with the camera, a sort of cat and mouse game I felt with us, with the, 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 the viewer. Um, Martin, on your blog, you call the work disarmingly powerful. Mm, yeah, well, I think um, I always go into a show hopefully keeping a little bit of a wide open mind. I'd heard a tiny bit about the work and I expected it would probably be up my street, as it were. But um, I really I sat down and I was just absolutely riveted. I, I really enjoyed it. I think the uh, the skill of uh, I know Peter Waring has gone uh, has made many, many um, video and film works and has crossed between kind of a more documentary style, mm. long form um, works and video installations with more fanciful kind of um, uh, ways of setting up things. But I think w- what was really, I, c- I could tell was the sort of shrewd ability to act as a cinematographer um, mm. in the best sense mixed with um, this footage that uh, I sometimes have trepidation seeing work that I, I think is sort of casually appropriated. Mm. Whereas in this one, I thought there was nothing casual about the no. appropriation. It was really well or sampling of this of this film. Uh, and so I think the cumulative effect of it, once you're in there, you're just sort of, ah, this is a really interesting micro universe that he's created out of the dual screen. 
Maybe we should just tease out a little bit of how he does some of that because mm. I, I think one of the interesting things is so the Pasolini film and I, what I really loved mm. about it is you don't need I don't think you need to have any high flutin knowledge of Pasolini to enjoy what he's doing here but the that work is clearly a, a, a comedy itself and uh, these monks whenever they go to speak Waring actually cuts them off he, he mm. just chops it it becomes this kind of the stuttering itself, the staggering, yes, exactly. the twittering—they become it becomes this game he's playing with the film, where he every time they go to speak, they they, they get turned into this kind of little blip, like a yeah. digital blip. Uh, and then occasionally, hurt. these um, uh, speech will come out, and it's about um, mm. uh, talking to the birds. Or there's this section where. Um, they say, what, what does God want from us? Love. And then yeah. on the other side, you see uh, Eugene Chrysler, who is sort of dancing down the streets of, of New Plymouth and Taranaki and, and um, you know, sort of getting out of the way barely of passing cars and grimacing and kind of making all these movements. But that's what the friars essentially are doing. They're kind of uh, um, scurrying through this garden. And um, Yeah, there's uh, definitely a comparison, although it's not over over-labeled. It's a mature mm, work of a mature mm, artist, and mm -hmm. that's highly apparent, and that's apparent in its resonance too. I thought Chrysler, I mean, is well, is well chosen, and, and that's just one element of the effects, the uh, you know the, the the moving image work is playing with sound, and that's absolutely crucial. The migration of sound from one screen to the others, passing from the abbreviated speech of the friars to the kind of sound of of cars passing vaguely in New Plymouth, is you know is uh, spot on. Hmm. And and Eugene wears this little necklace of feathers, and yeah. I thought he was quite knowingly performing being in a flap. You know, yeah. his arms often lift and there's mm. there's huge echoes of the movements of the friars, but at the same time they're not deeply referenced. And I wondered if Chrysler had an awareness that this footage was being worked with or how informed he was. Mm. But at some level we're getting a performance, and I don't know how real that is or not, of the outsider. And I wondered if really what I took away was a an experience of loneliness or exile um, that, that, you know, at, mm. at some level was quite knowingly performed as mm. well. Well I think it's very theatrical both the Pasolini and the, the Chrysler stuff. But uh, Particularly the Pasolini <laughs> I might add. Yeah yeah yeah. Um, but wonderful. I, the intricate yeah. movements of their expressions, Chrysler's and the actors performing these monks, the kind of young foolish monk mm. and, the, and the old foolish monk as it were, are, are rather wonderful. But, but it's interesting how much as there was a sort of wave of method acting in the late 20th century, a lot of European directors like Pasolini or Robert uh, Bresson in France really liked to use unskilled and untrained actors and people that they met who they mm. thought really inhabited mm. a kind yeah, of persona. And so I thought it was interesting thinking that, mm. you know, it's actually the European director's film that looks the most stagey. And then, but then a lot of them were drawn towards uh, the sort of humanity that they found in people that weren't learning to portray a character but were almost playing themselves which is which is really what um, uh, Chrysler is doing is obviously uh, a version of himself in this video that becomes um, and, and, and one thing I noticed is as he's moving around his body language doesn't give you quite a sense of of age or place or anything and then and then there are these shots that are very tight focus of yeah. his face and you you see it someone who's in their mid-40s it's not it's not a teenager 
you know, running through the streets or something like that. I love the fact that, you know, this sort of was, yeah, it's this absurdity. I mean, I was reminded of something like Waiting for Godot and that mm-hmm. kind of, mm-hmm. that, that poignancy and it almost what you, you call about a, a mature work, Megan. It is this kind of sense of, of you know, not everything needs to make sense. Um, what is this life for? And this kind of play, this dance, this... And the frustration of communication and that everything, this constant, and that both works seem to be about this, the frustration of communication or, or, or trying to refute it and, and play against it the whole time, that everything had to be symbolic. Everything was constantly being undone the whole time for me. And I, I love that. It was like the, the, that whole role of the fool mm. and how important mm-hmm. the fool is. And that sometimes it kind of made me think, have we forgotten that role? Mm-hmm. Have that, that, that role of art to kind of, to, to make us stop trying to read so seriously into everything. I think this is a serious work, mm. and and I think there's real gravitas to it. Um, the the subtitles that Martin referenced before, I noted a few of them down. You know, between the friars who are speaking to the birds, that parable is that Saint Francis of Assisi has spoken to the, these two friars and asked them to convert the hawks and the sparrows to Christianity. <laughs> I believe in the original parable, which the film draws on, that uh, as as the sparrows are converted, they're eaten by the hawks, but the the subtitles that flash up during the scene where the friars are speaking to the birds are, we are creatures of God. Who's God? Presumably mm-hmm. that's coming from the birds. Yeah. <laughs> the creature of creatures. Why did God create us? Each of us is God. Mm-hmm. And then it goes on to what does God want? Love. And then there's love with an exclamation mark and there's this wonderful echo on Eugene's screen where he throws his hand up, almost <laughs> like the exclamation yeah. mark. It's mm-hmm. just, there, there's so much subtlety in this and it really did grip me. Mm. And I'm I mean, let's be honest, one of the huge problems of video yeah, art, moving yeah. image art, is how often does it really sustain us yeah. um, over time? Yeah. And But this, even though it is slow and nuanced in, in its method, um, it is sustaining. Mm-hmm. It's a grower. I was interested in talking just briefly also about the way it's presented, which I thought was very beautiful. You've got the two screens in there mm. uh, onto these painted grey rectangular areas and often with the with the Pasolini when it goes to, if it goes to black but it doesn't go to black there's actually you can still see the scenes moving like a, a yes, sort of a, yes, a shadow of yeah. it I was wondering if you what you guys made of that and, and well I think the it. installation was really well crafted and set up and so it, basically in the, the wall is painted grey and so it sort of sets off the dark tones and the highlights and the and, and you kind of have the um, the Pasolini footage sort of has this um uh, silvery, you know, vintage kind of mm. look to it, and then uh, Peter Waring's uh, footage has this kind of almost bluish, high definition, mm. really sharp look to it. But the two work, I think, very well together. And another thing I would raise that's unrelated to that is sort of that there are different levels of subtext to the mm. exhibition, and sort of the fact that, for example. Um, uh, those in New Zealand would be likely to know that, or might know with a little homework that um, uh, Eugene Chrysler, in the, who's in one of the videos, is the son of Tom Chrysler, the artist, who um, was a quite, you know, a, a pretty underrated and major figure, I think, in, in New Zealand art. And, yeah, had a major uh, show, which was here at the Adam Art Gallery yeah, in Wellington. Yes, yeah. yeah. I think in a way, it's about 
the visionary, isn't it? Mm. Like the flip side of the fool or the prophet. Uh, you know, there's a, there's the sense of them as the idiot, the village idiot, which comes across in this in, in different parts. But there's also the sense of them as visionary and as being closer to to God. I hesitate <laughs> to use that term because really the divine yes. or some spiritual sense or larger vision and that's there's an interplay around that as well i mean he's he's working with something here that could collapse into cliche that is mm. cliche because it's archetype mm. but i i think he that is negotiated with with great skill yeah well i think every time that i thought that the work might be maybe a little over the top or pretentious it's like the skill of making the work the sort of visual symmetries and rhymes the um, yeah. the real um, I think knowledge of when to edit and when to let up the yeah. sort of pressure or to um, was just well evidenced you know you don't have that with a neophyte um, video artist and there's a wonderful sequence of abbreviated laughter you know that gang <laughs> that, that gang of young men who actually torment the young friar mm. seeming to throw him into the ear which is mm. a scene worth seeing but they, their heads all pop up above the crest of this hill and their laughter is cut off on the first note mm. time and time again so there is great humour and great warmth in Eugene's own face and his, and his slightly weathered uh, hair being curled by the wind which ha you know he does have a a rather monk-like look, which helps. Oh wow, that's uh, that's a sort of a all feel, feel that's a mature, beautiful work, and uh, worth mentioning also that Peter Waring's work is featured on the Circuit website, where there's a uh, a very good um, article as well mm -hmm. on, on on his practice. Thank you, Megan and Martin. Thanks for joining us. Thank Thanks. you, Mark. Well then, you're listening to Circuit Cast, views, voices and debate on moving image and art. And for this part of the show, we decamp to a noisy city gallery, Wellington, where at the time of recording, artist Young Yo All is installing his 10-year survey exhibition, More More. And a warning, folks, this recording contains lots of bangs, crashes and most of all, pops. Um, kia ora to you, Young Yo. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Hello. Hey, would well, you enjoy this time, putting the work together and installing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is different from Dunedin. Uh, this show was in Dunedin yeah, first, was, yeah? Yeah, the Dunedin Public Art Gallery. I mean, same works, but uh, in different space. I really enjoy uh, putting, you know, being in here. It's an exciting time. It's kind of like you've got your toys out, as it were, and on the floor, and you're trying to work out where they all sit with your curator here, Aaron. Yeah, I really enjoy working together with Aaron and Aaron. And, uh, Two Aarons. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's always great to um, having some feedbacks and um, discuss how you know how to make it the the best way, discovering uh, the best way of putting things together, and you know how to create different dialogues in different two spaces. Okay, what have we got here? Can you describe what we've got in front of us here in this this gallery that's going in? Uh, this is Mian series. Mian means noodles in Korean. Okay, I've started with naengmyeon, which is cold noodle. And I've started bringing out different um, types and menus, um, dishes of um, different Korean noodles. How many noodle dishes have we got here in the room? We've got a, yes. quite a range. Eight, seven. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, this is jajangmyeon. It's like a bean paste noodle. 
I mean, you know, these are food, um, realistic food-looking um, work, plastic object. Um, so it's not just the, you know, it's, it appears to be food, but it's not really. So there's a, there's a lot of humour there, but it's actually in terms of the, the you know the, the physical realization of the work. There's a, there's a really interesting sort of technical challenge. It's doing something the sculpture doesn't mm. normally do. Are you? I, I mean that, that that industrial process of of doing something that maybe hasn't been done or extends mm. things is that something that drives your projects? Uh, yes or no? I mean it's just so, something quite recently um, started. Uh, it was actually started when I did my first uh, artist in residency program in Seoul, Korea. I, as I didn't have studio and I didn't, um, I wasn't quite sure what I could create in the environment. So and I was interested in finding people who manufacturing or making things that that I cannot make. Okay. So yeah. it's to discover and um, the process of bringing up with ideas and finding the solution to get that idea uh, physicalized. Okay. Mm. Does it, is there sometimes a, uh, a long period between when you have an idea and actually be able to realize it? Oh, absolutely. But sometimes it's just like today's idea done tomorrow. Oh, right. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite instant too. Yeah. So here in the gallery, we can just hear the balloons going off in the next room. Where does this kind of interest in inflation and bursting come from? Is there a particular kind of... The interest that stems from? Um, fact, you know, I mean, uh, I read this book about pufferfish, how it how it blows itself up, to, uh -huh. you know, showing that they are like, angry and looks bigger themselves. And there's something that I thought, you know, how the balloon is something that man made that you blow it up and it becomes something bigger, mm. expands and sh creating this shapes and forms and it pops and disappears just by it's like shaping an air and how it's very organic although it's man-made thing in the gallery sense your work is almost does the opposite of a lot of work and whether it's that mm. sort of do not touch the object whereas here you're sort of actively almost asking people to encounter them we're in the room here with um I always just think of them as the weeble wobbles, these kind of bird-like egg figures. What are, what, what's the name of this work again? Uh, it's called Otugi. Yeah. Mm. Um, and you know, you're actively people coming in here that are sort of actively almost asked to give them a give them a push. Mm. Yeah, they they are allowed to <laughs> in, in <laughs> a degree. I mean, yeah. I mean, I do. <laughs> are, uh, is that intentional for you to kind of push us beyond just the play that we find things through play? Uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, it, it seems playful, and it, it you can play with. But I mean, I'm I'm talking about or thinking about uh, and creating its physical shapes and something a bit more um, to do with our body and how our physical experience can reflect themselves onto it and how it creates its own dialogue. So. It's, it just depend, depends on their perspective on how to take on um, with that object. It, it, it may vary. Um, I'd imagine the expands. relationship to the work of a small child is quite different from an adult. I mean, yeah, it might be quite scary for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, mean, I don't know, maybe, yeah.
So we're here with the, the video we were describing earlier with people blowing up the balloons that you've been filming over time. I mean, to me, it's quite violent. It's, I mean, it's enormously fun, but it is, you know, it's, 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 it probably sounds almost like the sound of rifle fire, continuous. It's, yeah, it's fun, but it's war. It's things pushed to the point of, of you know, death. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow, well, you know, there is the end. <laughs> I mean, you know, whoever starts and blow up, they know, you know, when it's going to end, and it's the anticipation, isn't it? waiting for it to happen. That seems almost something that you, your work gives us that kick all the time. The sort of element of constant element of surprise of how we how we deal with something, of an invitation to be surprised. Mm, maybe there's something that we don't expect from a gallery space or it's the context of being in a gallery the idea of being in a gallery what you expect can be something um, unexpected from my practice yeah yeah um, maybe <laughs> yeah, I, I mean you know it might be challenging um, whether to accepting it as an artwork or not Radio, you're in the Circuit Cast Pod, and in this part of the show, we phone a friend, new or old, somewhere else on the planet. And this month, we shake the dice and end up in Spain talking to curator Mercedes Vicente, a former curator at Govett Brewster, currently based in London. Mercedes is known for her work on seminal New Zealand film artist Darcy Lange. Hola, Kiara Mercedes. Um, hello, <laughs> Hola. dear. Uh, what, are you, what are you doing in yes. Barcelona? Actually, I'm not in Barcelona. I'm in a, in a city two hours south from Barcelona, in the coast, in the Mediterranean Sea, called Castellón. And I'm at the moment organizing an exhibition. We're installing an exhibition called uh, Vestigios Invisibles, Invisible Traces. Um, that is a photographic survey with five artists, and two of them are from New Zealand, Anne Shelton and Mark Adams. Oh, we'll say hi from us. Um, meanwhile, here here in uh, New Zealand, you, uh, your exhibition, The Art and Social Change Research Project, is running concurrently yes. at the Physics Room in Christchurch in Tatuhi in Auckland. Um, I, I was interested, it's a report on your residency you did in Delhi. Could you tell us a bit about the residency? Yes. Well, the project initiated um, probably a while, maybe a year and a half ago, um, after leaving the Gover Brewster, and uh, I was, you know, as you know, I'm always interested in, in, I guess, socially and politically engaged artists. And I was, um, I was also thinking that in through the Gover Brewster, when we have invited in the past artists in residence, you know, you see artists coming and engaging on the local politics or the local issues. And then they come and go, and um, yes. it made me think that what, how we could set up a situation where artists could engage with issues, but with a long-term commitment that would have lasting effects on the community. Yes. And I have a friend in New York, a journalist, who has written a book on social entrepreneurs. He's been writing about social entrepreneurship since, I guess, mid-90s. And he wrote a book, which is considered the Bible of social entrepreneurship, called How to Change the World. His name is David Bernstein. And at the time when I knew him in New York, I didn't, it was not something that I was interested in. But later on, it made me think that perhaps 
there was a way that one could establish collaborations between artists who were who were interested in in bringing change or effect change and and social entrepreneurs. What what how do you, how do we define a social entrepreneur, Mercedes? For those who don't know that term, I mean, it's, well, it is increasingly well known. You know, when I sure, I mean, when I when I start um, researching what institution that sort of was my model, following you know David Bornstein's book, he does research on an institution, on an organization called Ashoka, which was uh, established in 1980 by Bill Drayton, who was a Harvard economist and. The institution started in the U.S. and then sort of opened internationally. And he defines the social entrepreneur as, a, as an individual who has, um, you know, his main drive is to really bring change. Is somebody who has a vision, who sees, who, who recognizes that there is a problem in society, and and he has a solution to it. Mainly driven not by a business trying to be profitable uh, economic-wise, but social-wise. So he established the institution Ashoka, which goes around the world trying to identify these individuals. And I was trying to find those individuals, basically people that, in my view, would be close to the, to the artists in, in, in terms of perhaps ideological position and in terms of really being driven mainly by trying to change the world, not trying to make a profit. But in this case, these individuals might come from a completely different background. They might be lawyers, they might be engineers, you know, they, they come from, from different professions. And these are people that understand perfectly fine what's the problem at stake. And they know the context, they have the networks, they have all of the things that artists might not have in engaging what, with a particular problem. And I thought that that combination could potentially be fruitful. There are many practices. Uh, I mean, I was reading at the time two people. I was Claire Bishop and, and Glenn Kester, and they yes. have very different positions uh, when it comes to assess socially engaged practices. And, you know, one of the big issues is, uh, that is raised by, by Claire Bishop is this idea that art, art has to be antagonistic. Yes, where yes, or provocative, I think that yes. Yeah, that it has to retain certain criticality, certain autonomy. Um, when it comes to the divide between, you know, your, the ethics and the aesthetics, one has to sit as an artist in the, in the sign of aesthetics. I don't think that Kester is as, uh, his position I think is different, quite different. Did you come out of doing this research project feeling that artists can affect lasting change? I, th I think that there's not, you know, life is more subtle and there's not such a thing as yes or not answer. I mean, I guess I would answer differently. I think that, oh my God, what I came out is, uh, I, qu I had great trouble while I was there. I mean, I have to say, honestly, I felt horrible about spending Creative New Zealand money, which was a relatively modest amount, but in being there reading books and, 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 and making interviews with people, I just felt that it was not justified because you get to see incredible levels of poverty and you think, well, you know, this money could do could bring change. I'm not bringing any change by interviewing people. So, uh, Can you give us an example of, of maybe a project that you did encounter or an artist uh, work, working with a social entrepreneur 
uh, that you feel yeah. is, was a really, it's really effective, where you feel you can see uh, an artist, an art project actually really being a, an effective mm. way to affect change? One of the artists that I interviewed there, Sharata Roy, she was working in collaboration with an NGO called Ancor. They deal with education and they work with underprivileged children and youth, and they try to create educational projects to bring, you know, literacy in, in Delhi, in, mm-hmm. in very particular neighborhoods. And she, Sharata, worked with them and proposed um, a project involving women and the occupation of a park, a public space that was sort of abandoned, full of trash. And and these were, uh, you know, Muslim women who were, you know, at home and they didn't have a public place where to gather and have a social life. And she proposed to take over that park and clean it and create a number of activities that would bring those women outside their homes and use the park as a place to socialize. This is a very simple idea. You know, it's probably the kind of project that, you know, conceptually is not very sophisticated. It's it's the kind of thing that you might just call a community project, Mm -hmm. basically. I mean, I would say that project was successful if you are assessing it in terms of change. You know, I think it brought change to this woman. They self-organized themselves. I mean, it was sort of triggered by Shrata, but then, you know, perhaps it brought the idea that they could actually use public space to gather together. It might give them, you know, it it, it brought those people together. So you could say, yes, that was a, a, a successful model. But you know, as, a, as an artistic project, is that a, a successful uh, project as well? So if you listen to some of the interviews that are in the project, in the exhibition at the moment, I mean, my question was, how do you resolve the divide and the conflict when it comes to conflict between the ethics and the aesthetics? How do you resolve that? And how do you place art and activism or... And, you know, the positions were quite different. So you don't have an art, you don't come out with an answer. You don't come out with an answer for that question. It's not. It's, it's just it, the, the, the answer is depends on where you place yourself with that. Yes. There's not a, a right or wrong answer. Some artists they think yes. that their artistic practice and their activi- activism is separate, and it has to be separate. I mean, Subda from Brax Collective, he's very, very clear. He's very lucid and um, understands, in his view, that you know these two things should work. They work separately and they should remain separate because it requires a very different set of skills. He thinks that he's a, a, a conscious um, citizen and he wants to contribute to society. And he's somebody who's very wise when it comes to media and communication. And he tries to help uh, political groups in 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 a space you know problems but he he thinks that in order to be successful you need to be very focused and apply very specific uh, strategies to achieve the goals that you need to achieve to resolve problems and he says when I'm an artist I want the opposite I want to be in in a pl- I want to uh, give myself a level of abstraction it's a place where I address philosophical questions. Not everybody thinks that way. I mean, I think that also 
I mean, I remember having this conversation with Martha Rosler, and she she can conceive that your um, art and your politics would be separate. Yeah. I mean, for her, what she does is a single thing, and I think that's very typical of um, of a generation. Could I ask you one final question, Mercedes? Which is, um, I'm interested regarding your work with Darcy uh, Lange, um and th- th- his kind of looking at the relationship between labour and capital. I mean, uh, there seem to be some similar concerns here, and, and whether, I guess, why his practice continues to resonate. I I guess in my lately, what I one of the things that I came is that I do think that Darcy had a strong um, political commitment, really, and there was an empathy with the working class. Um, in a recent, my most recent research, um, one of the themes that I came through, that which, I mean, um, Lawrence MacDonald addresses in the essay that he wrote for the monograph, is the issue that Darcy's uh, work is, is developing coincidentally with the beginning of cultural studies in Birmingham. And I think the figure of Stuart Hall, um, for me, draws a very interesting parallel with, with Darcy. I mean, in the case of Stuart Hall, he addresses the issue of, eth- of eth- ethnic uh, as, a, as, an, as an African Jamaican, right. uh, as somebody who is black arriving in England. And for Darcy, it's more the issue of class. Darcy was not a, a theoretical, he was not a Victor Bergen or or, um, you know, Alan Sekula was not somebody who's writing theoretically about his work. But, and he's trying sort of to define what is the, the nature of, of his practice. So he's very tentative, but, I, but he does speak and defines his work as a sort of social activism. That's the word that he uses in that interview. So, yeah, it does connect, yeah. Anyway. That's really interesting, and good luck with your research on there, and um, and thank you for bringing these uh, shows yeah, to two venues you. here in, in New Zealand. Absolutely. One thing I should say is that I, when I arrive in Christchurch, I find being there, it felt that the context was so dramatically different from yes. Auckland yeah. <laughs> that the show, it felt almost like a different show, yes. at least to me. I mean, which really shows that context is very important to me, almost the show in Auckland is an, is an, art, is an art show. Yeah. Um, people are going to engage with it from uh, aesthetics, almost, you know. And where, when, you bring, when you bring it into the context of Christchurch, suddenly the project is about social change. And that completes CircuitCast. Thank you to our guests, be they in Wellington or Barcelona. CircuitCast has been produced by circuit.org.nz with the assistance of Creative New Zealand and music by Orchestra of Spheres.